Excellent. Did you, what voice. did you have for breakfast today? I had Weetabix and they were delicious. Do you add anything to your Weetabix? I do, honey. <laughs> well, what is it, baby? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Jessica. And with us today is Adam Waddingham, a first history PhD student. So Adam, do you want to tell us a bit about how you came to be at Manchester? Certainly. So um, I've just finished my MA. I'm literally graduating in two days. Ah, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I've just started my PhD and I came to Manchester to start my MA after a little bit away following my undergrad and I've carried on straight through. So I've finished my MA and then just applied for a PhD, um, leave some spondoolie to do it and I've carried on. So this is normally the point in the podcast where we ask people to explain their research, but there is a specific... <laughs> factor at play which is that not safe for publication is a podcast where we don't censor anyone or anything (laughs) or any words with the exception of one word now you know what that word is our regular listeners might know what that word is Uh, it begins with b and it refers to the decision of great britain to leave the eu adam will you please explain your research without using that word so you want me to explain Euroscepticism in the United Kingdom without using the B word? Yes. yes. So I should explain, for a while, my Twitter bio had um, had just the B word as its hashtag. So I'm going to try and do this without using the B word. What, your entire Twitter bio was just B, hashtag B word? B word. Yeah. yeah. But, no, but wait, actual B word? or the B actual, word. Oh, wow, okay. Cool. Yeah, without using <laughs> that word. I'm kind of looking at the history of an idea in a sense, so I'm trying to historicise a little bit about how Euroscepticism has come to dominate British political life at the moment. So it is a political crisis, and it's something that really interests me, um, not necessarily just because of the most recent referendum on the UK's relationship with the European Union, but actually I think there's a deeper relationship and there's kind of a more interesting one about kind of political identity, political cultures and traditions in the UK. So I look at it specifically from the point of view of Conservatives, and particularly Conservatives in the spatial confines of the North West. So it's not just the B word. I'm looking at a kind of history of a relationship between different groups and cultures and identity that comes with a spatially defined region, the Northwest in this case, and its relationship between a party and a, a concept that's come to take over political life at the moment. Yeah, I didn't realise you were just doing the Northwest. Why? So I think there's something really interesting in a number of ways, but one of which is the Northwest has a kind of deep relationship with conservatism that might not actually be apparent. So there's kind of this concept that conservatism is a bit alien or it's kind of political deviancy, particularly in places like Liverpool or kind of urban centres like Manchester, Wigan, places like that. But actually there is a longer history with both big C and small C conservatism. Um, There's even a term, Lancashire Toryism, that's developed, kind of comes out in the 1800s as this kind of move, a reaction as much to the kind of Manchester school and the kind of traditional ideas of liberalism, as well as something in and of itself kind of based around notions of paternalism, protectionism and kind of Protestantism. So from what I understand, this follows on from something you wrote for your MA. So this was your MA dissertation. Is there a particular inciting incident 
or sort of area of interest that led you to this subject of study? Have you always been a modernist historian? So first of all, yeah, I've always kind of been a modernist historian. Modern history interests me in kind of a different way to, you know, stories of kings and queens I find interesting, but I find political history and kind of modern political history in particular really interesting. From the point of view, I think there is so many different ways of cutting it and looking at it. It becomes a lot more rounded in my head. Not to say that, you know, of course, medieval history and those types of history aren't. I just find political history for me. Me and Georgia are nodding emphatically. (laughs) (laughs) Really kind of, yeah, multifaceted multi-layered and exciting and interesting so there's that kind of aspect around the modern bit weirdly I started so I did my undergrad um, quite a few years back now and when I did that I kind of always saw myself as a bit of a social historian or a kind of social historian of the Labour Party particularly so I looked at entryism as a kind of political idea in in the Labour Party uh, particularly at that point Um, and this is kind of long before any of the kind of debates around kind of Labour's position with momentum and Avo's kind mm-hmm. of entryist groups. And I was looking particularly at that point around a group in Liverpool called Militant Tendency. Well, Militant, and they had a newspaper called The Militant Tendency. And that's kind of where I started to think about political history as something that might be interesting, and not in the sense of the kind of high political kind of Westminster accounts about what Disraeli did, or something like that, which is... <laughs> For me, I find it quite boring, actually. You know, so someone spoke in the chamber, great. But actually, how was that received and how did people understand kind of political ideas? That's what interests me. And I think, weirdly, the Conservative Party in the Northwest have something more of a history to tell and a history that is, like I said before, multifaceted and kind of different. There's reactions against it, but there's also kind of, you know, the whole secret Tory kind of idea as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> a lot and of it, my friends. <laughs> yeah. And if you cut it in lots of different ways, the Northwest, it's not the kind of, you know, we talk about the red kind of benchmark, you know, the red borderlands of the North, but actually there must be something else going on because there is a difference in kind of electoral results that come out. I'm just, this is my bias. How can you explore, so if you're doing the history of an idea, how can you explore impact? If you're just doing an intellectual history, are you doing intellectual and cultural? To be honest, I'm not really sure at the moment. I kind of think I am a little bit. Okay. Um, Impact's always one of those terms. I kind of think I know what I mean when I talk about it, but actually when I start to think about it, it becomes a lot more difficult. So for example, one, one way I've recently started thinking about how I could approach the project is through comedy. And I can guarantee this was not in the research proposal. It's one of those 3am in the morning, wake up and, oh, that might be a good idea. Mm. But actually, comedy has a currency that comes across, you know, it literally makes people laugh, it draws people in. And certain comedians in the North talk about kind of the relationship between political ideas and you know, whether they work, whether they don't, how funny they are, how funny they're not in some cases. And it's got me to thinking, is there possibly something around kind of political cultures that I'm missing out at the moment? So not just the kind of reception and receiving of an idea through, say, like a newspaper Mm. or, you know, a journal or whatever it might be, however people come to political ideas, but things like, for example, education textbooks. So how do we learn about political ideas? How are those reinforced? So looking at things like comedy, to be frank, is is Euroscepticism as an idea something that was taken as a joke for a long time? Or actually is it something that's just come around and it's a reaction to political events at the moment? 
never thought to look at comedy. No, and I think there's such an interesting set of problematics there in terms of determining how you do that without introducing a lot of selection bias. I think you could, like, it sounds really exciting to me to be thinking about these kind of ways of culturally disseminating an idea that are perhaps kind of overlooked because they're not high culture or they're not sort of not in the, not systematised in the same way that education is but you would, your source selection process would be really, really interesting. Uh, and you would probably find that you got a thesis worth of material out of it. So. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because a cultural would be completely different to a political one. And I'm sure like, I feel like other historians have already done maybe a cultural one. Maybe Rob Saunders, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, so people like Rob... Um Oh, Rob. Sorry. Oh, Rob. <laughs> Rob. <You're laughs> <best name. laughs> I wish. I wish. He's one of those people I'd really love like to sit down and have a coffee with at some point and just pick his brains about how he approached. So his new book, um, it's not that new actually, it's been a couple of years now, um, Yes to Europe, the history of the 75 campaign, is one of those things that really got me started thinking about this. So when I was midway through the MA, kind of just being told about Rob's work, going away and reading it. And then discovering actually this is quite an interesting way to write a history of an idea or a campaign or um, a political kind of campaign in that sense. I mean, and thinking about something that if I was going to model something I want, that's a piece of work that I can produce, something quite like that. What is it that you think makes your work belong in history? and not belong in politics. I appreciate that that is firstly a really tough question and also probably one you get asked a lot. Yeah, yeah, so there's um, actually there's a cop-out way of answering that. So I'm a member of, um, actually I've just joined the Politics and History subgroup of the Political Studies Association. And apart from all the exciting stuff we've done there, there's a free plug for you, David. Um, <laughs> we've talked about kind of the... I heard this once in an essay, the slippy slopes of political science and history. I mean, they ultimately end up at kind of the same point if you take that analogy of slipping down the slope. But they are kind of distinctly different in the disciplines. So I think this project sits in history because it's an attempt to historicise ideas. It's an attempt to look at ideas in the broadest sense possible of pulling in historical understanding of how an idea might have developed how the idea has changed, rather than, and this is kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, but it's how I look at it in a kind of pulse-eye way of looking at it, of this is a situation at the moment, let's analyse it purely using available data at the moment. Mm -hmm. Not to say, of course, you know, political scientists don't pull in aspects of political history, but I think they are distinctly different. Mm. And from my point of view, I'm trying to write a kind of historicised account, rather than just, you know, pulling in, I say just, it's actually incredibly difficult, pulling in kind of survey data and that kind of, harder science aspect which I'm completely useless at. Mm. <laughs> I hate it when you're doing because I go up to like the 90s and I always get people's parents being like but that's when I was around and it really infuriates me because it's like yeah it's still history <laughs> like it really pisses me off so I can I feel like I can kind of understand where you're coming from. Yeah definitely and there's uh, I get quite protective about saying you know this is not sociology or this is not political science actually mm. it's got aspects of both it's kind of in there mm. but I am doing history and I'm a historian if quite I do rare go up to for me to be in a group of three historians and be the one who's working <laughs> longest to go in the past 
so all true. the way back to the late 1960s <laughs> <laughs> but like I always get it from my supervisor when they feel like I'm trying to create a new social theory and they're like Jessica you're doing history not sociology and I'm like sorry <laughs> I mean when you are dealing with the more recent past and when the people involved in the history you're working on are still alive in a way that is one of the most exciting types of history to be doing because you can ask people you yeah. can instead of just being like well here's what i think that the writer of this document might have meant it's yeah. like well you can find a person and ask them and it sort of adds a lot of in my opinion it can really enrich history obviously it's you know you have to use it cautiously and in combination with other approaches but you know when you know about something like particularly you know thinking about your project Adam like you have been here for what we could maybe consider the culmination of 35-ish years of Eurosceptic sentiment hmm. so you do know what that was like and you will have your own memories of the sort of discourses that that led up to that it's actually I know we're maybe not supposed to do this but it's such an exciting opportunity to put yourself into your work yeah because you did an Erasmus didn't you mm. yeah yeah so I've kind of been one of those um, people who've really experienced the benefits from my perspective of being a member of the European Union so the change in the relationship I'm trying not to use the B word the change in the relationship <laughs> brought on most recently <laughs> is it's one of those things that actually has an emotional response for me I am someone who has campaigned as part of Remain so this is difficult to say the least it's kind of head mashingly annoying <laughs> to the point I want you to put your head on the desk and repeatedly bang it but we are where we are it's a political situation and to be frank it's given me a great opportunity to research something I'm really interested in and the point about kind of the project as well using living people I kind of see it as one of the strengths actually being able to interview people so at the minute a kind of big component of this is using oral histories and using kind of the accounts of people who've been there in either previous decisions or actually some of the most recent referendum decisions I think will give it a kind of a flavour that's different from kind of just historicised accounts of 75 or something like that yeah, because I guess oral history is so much associated with social history or feminist history. It'll be interesting to read a political account using oral history. Um, Especially because it's a, a form that's used so much in what we might call like history from below. Mm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And when we're talking about a referendum result, which was taken in this democratic direction, we still, a lot of the narratives that we have about that time are not coming from the sort of the level of the people the sort of the people who are involved in that democracy directly it's about the people who tried to shape the narratives the media the politicians and there's this opportunity to kind of make audible a group or, or several groups I suppose at mm -hmm. least two groups <laughs> um, who who sort of processed all the information that they were given and then made a decision So you are a first year historian and we're recording this episode in December, which means that you're coming up in the end of your first term. So we've interv interviewed a couple of first years before, but I think it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about, you know, I think that we, we hope that some of our audience will be people who are thinking about doing a PhD. And so when we have the opportunity to speak to someone who's just started, it'd be really nice to hear about your experiences, things that have surprised you about sort of coming in and taking on this challenge? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'd say it's not what I expected at all. Um, 
it's kind of a lot more um, full on than I expected to begin with but in a good way actually I've surprised myself I think by the amount that I've kind of come across and read recently um, but by the same token as well it's not kind of fell to any point it's been too much I've kind of used the analogy before of like standing at the bottom of a dam and the dam's breaking but actually the stuff I've had a chance to get involved in and get my teeth into in terms of my subject have been really exciting um, I know that sounds kind of trite doesn't it you know exciting but actually it is it's getting your own time to go off and do something that I am interested in to try and think about and having moments like that kind of 3am sitting up in bed and going oh shit I can talk about comedy that's for me really exciting something I couldn't probably have done before also I'm at the point I think where I'm starting to firm up a couple of ideas about what I want my thesis to say mm -hmm. so I mean they're only kind of again, that's good I still don't know what I want my thesis <laughs> to say like 3am kind of bed thoughts but that said like still there are some things that need to be said and I'm kind of getting to the point of I can see a little bit about what that intervention might be or you know what I could sort of add on to that or something that's missing from my mm. perspective in the current stuff there's a bit about community as well so actually I didn't kind of I kind of heard the PhD was quite lonely um, and kind of quite a socially awkward kind of setup in the sense of you know you spend a lot of time doing your own work generally you're kind of alone you know it's such an individualized thing it's up to you but so far my experience that's kind of not been borne out at all it's actually a really nice kind of community um, and community with a capital's kind of C kind of way. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Jeff. Yeah, um, it's my least favourite word. It's kind of triggering for me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like, so it is. It's kind of like you get a chance to meet people who are generally the most switched on people you're going to meet on that subject. <clears throat> and you get to have fun. <clears throat> my liver has still not quite forgiven me for the MA yet. And it's kind of at the moment carrying on a little bit like that. <laughs> and in another way as well, kind of exciting as well. So some of the things I'm starting to do at the moment, I genuinely have wanted to do for a really long time. So looking at things like who can I interview? Where can I go to do that? Where's that sexy conference overseas? Those kind of things. Yeah have started to suddenly come on the radar and be really exciting. So obviously you're doing the history of conservatism and you're also doing the history of politics. So no doubt the books that you read and the stuff that you read, I'm sure you come across some nightmarish people. What's the idea that needs to die in your field? Right, so I've got two answers around that. First of all, one that always genuinely gripes me, that if you are studying a certain thing, you believe that certain thing. And if you're a Labour historian, therefore you generally, obviously, obviously, you must be a Labour member. That needs to die. I am sick to the back teeth of kind of that question at conference or something like that about, oh, so you must think this. Mm. Generally, I kind of think historians should have freedom to go off and do and study whatever they want. In terms of ideas that I think need to die... That was a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> it was intense. Can you tell as well I've been wound up about that one? I don't have a... I'm trying to think what the answer would be for me, be and I don't know if I have one. But I'm just so easily persuaded. I just believe whatever the last thing I read was. Yes. Same. <laughs> so it's not necessarily an idea I think I want to kill off. In anything, actually, it's the other way. Something I want to kind of promote as well a little bit. And I've talked about this... Oh, talking about grad school. Things like the seminars. So going along to those and being involved in those are really good. But one of them I'm really keen is kind of ideas in and of themselves do bugger all. You can have an idea, mm. but ultimately you need someone to give effect to it. You need an actor or you need people who can make something happen. So, sorry, that's a proper cop-out. I'm not going to kill off an idea. I'm going to promote one instead. No, but maybe I should think about my... I've got a few. 
A lot of them is to do with Thatcher. Like, <laughs> did, oh, like no did such she, thing as society. Or like, like, did that. she have it? Did she have influence, or was she reacting to change? Some people think that she created change, or that she responded to the changes that were happening. Oh, Thatcherism that has, before Thatcher. That has told me what mine is. The idea that I would kill off isn't at all prevalent among people who actually know a lot about media in the Vietnam War. But people right. who don't know a lot about media in the <laughs> Vietnam War very much subscribe to the idea that television coverage and press coverage in general sort of turned public opinion against the war, yeah. and it was public opinion that ended the war, whereas it's pretty much, once you start getting into it, it's very clear that that's not the case. And also, slightly controversial one, that it was the suffragettes that got the vote, as opposed to maybe something else happening in the political landscape which got women the vote. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Although, one kind of one... I'd I'd want to kill off as well and this comes from a little bit of my kind of approach to it is the kind of unquestioning reception of ideas so for example Oliver Daddo talks about Euroscepticism not using the B word and kind of the media and one way I think that people take ideas is through newspapers of course it is that's you know how people form ideas but it's not unquestioning and the kind mm. of idea that if you are of a certain socioeconomic group you just wholeheartedly read a certain paper of a certain colour and believe that it's complete bollocks and I think that's kind of one of his ideas I want to kill off mm. yeah I think that's probably something that I, I can really relate to is this kind of weird idea of audiences as these monolithic sort of receivers rather than as individuals who get you know are exposed to the information and then do form their own opinions about it once you start getting into obviously back to my own subject but letters to the editor written during the Vietnam era the editors are choosing those letters, but they're not only choosing letters that support their viewpoint. There's, you know, it'll pretty much always be a 50-50 split between kind of more hawkish letters and more dovish letters in response to the exact same article, meaning that some people will look at a, you know, a picture that one person finds it completely heartbreaking and says it can only argue for the end of the war and the other mm -hmm. person says well you know if we end the war then we're leaving these vulnerable people more vulnerable. People are just always only ever using, in my experience, people are only ever using the media they consume to actually sort of underscore and strengthen things that they basically believe already. And I guess with those, with cultural history, when you're using print press, you're using like the printed press or TV to understand opinions, is that it over, for me, it overlooks the impact that relationships have on formations of ideas. So impacts of parents' beliefs, what are the parents reading as opposed to what are youth cultures reading and how are those how are those political views communicated in real life and that's something that I feel like sometimes cultural history yet yeah, doesn't really cover. Obviously you can't cover everything but as a historian of relationships that's kind of important for me. <laughs> yeah well I've got like, um, the, so relationships are a really good way of looking at it I think. My, I've got a really good friend who's kind of worked on the ideas of friendships and I kind of think in a similar kind of way ideas are a little like friendships we wouldn't take them unquestioningly that this person would therefore like all of that and i kind of think ideas are the same kind of way yeah you think there's there's agency in being in being critical mm. yeah definitely so one of the things that we ask all the guests on our podcast to come along with is some kind of funny story or anecdote from their research life do you have one to share with us yeah my long long established research life of three months um but, <laughs> so um yeah there is one that i kind of thought about for this uh, when i first started doing the um interviews for my last project i stupidly kind of thought that skype would be the best way of doing certain interviews with a certain busy person i i'm not sure i can name her but um she's an mp for the well, former mp for the northwest and i interviewed her in my flat 
and kind of read a little bit about you know make sure it's a neutral environment it's kind of clear on the questions sound quality was absolutely fine video quality great it's kind of recording it as well so you know i've gone through all the, the ethical and legal hoops but one thing you need to remember and one thing that i kind of forgot when you're interviewing someone and you wake up 20 minutes before the interview is due to start and you're in a bit of a rush so i'd, I'd kind of made myself you know look look okay but i was sat there in what we could say top half and this is perfect because you can't see this on the radio so i could be doing exactly the same right now <laughs> um, i'm not instantly but i was wearing top half kind of shirt um looks like a jumper shirt actually um and thought that was all fine grand but wasn't a bit of a rush so i was just sat there in my boxes so just boxes shirt but for the purposes of the interview, what this person would see on screen would look completely professional and oh, great. Oh, a Skype, right, yeah. okay. Skype okay. interview. Got it. <laughs> in my flat, so it wasn't, it wasn't in Nero or anywhere like that. Other coffee shops are available. Um, <laughs> anything like that. So I was I was there and halfway through, it was going great. It got very comfortable, literally. I was on my sofa um, and halfway through, stood up to go and make a cup of coffee and <laughs> I think I realised something was up the minute I saw her face completely drop and then I realised and then sat back down very quickly <laughs> and so don't flash your interviewers in <laughs> boxes that's <laughs> the main takeaway I think the shame that's not wait you've got it videoed presumably you weren't capturing your own no feed oh there. that would have been there's the audio of it where you can hear me profusely apologising. audibly gasp. Oh, sorry about oh. that. <laughs> Whoops. Whoopsie. Moving on. Whoopsie. <laughs> and I mean, like, like oh, there I was trying God. to like, make a professional image. Like, you know, I'm Billy Big Balls, I've got this. <laughs> this interview. Mm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to react to that one. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that one untouched. Well, that's exactly. So I told like um, my supervisor. And then another member of the department as well, and their reaction was exactly the same. The ooh, <laughs> ooh. At least, um, yeah, you've submitted your ethical approval form already, right? That's it. <laughs> Let's hope they're not listening. <laughs> Hello, Salk Ethics community. <laughs> sure, they're listening intently. So, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been really great to hear a little bit about your research and about how your first year is sort of starting to shape up. Maybe in the future we'll have you we'll have you back in a year's time and you'll be like, all my great ideas, all my hope, <laughs> it's gone. I'll just be doing a comedy set by now. Yeah. You're just going to do a bog standard intellectual history reading tracks written by stuffy old Tories and comedian history is going to be out the window. Completely top down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me along. Thank you. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by... Twin Musical.